Hello, brothers and sisters. It's wonderful to be with you today. This is the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me Made Easier series on the Old Testament. And today we're going to look at Psalms as a follow-up to the previous podcast, which also focused on the book of Psalms. My name is Thomas Holton, and I'm one of the authors with Cedar Fort. And I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to talk about King David and his Psalms. And David is one of those figures in the scriptures that is a difficult case because of the great experiences that he had and the mighty things he did from a spiritual point of view, but also the weaknesses of his life and his sins and follies. And he was very much a real person, a real man with real struggles. And we need to look at these verses and I think reflect on the fact that Psalms is so personal in many ways, and it's relational. It's about the relationship that David had with God and the other contributors to the Psalms. And I often think about our own journals, that if our journals were to be written down in the scriptures, we would see many of our personal struggles and many of our challenges brought to light in the scriptures. And so King David is bearing his soul in many of these, and we can really get a sense and a feel for what he was going through, the difficulties of his life, and also the high points, his reliance on God, his need for repentance and redemption. And if we were to write a poem or write a hymn or write down our prayers in many ways that would be reflective of what we see in the Psalms. We see real struggles. We see real challenge. We see real testimony and and real faith and real power and real wisdom and real conflict and turbulence. There are so many themes and topics which are reflected in the Psalms, which I think are really critically important. And I hope that as we go through this material, that we reflect, that we will meditate and ponder and ask ourselves many questions, that we will know about our own lives and see reflected in the scriptural account our lives and the experiences of our lives reflected in scripture. So, let's let's jump in to Psalms. We'll start with Psalm 49. And the, the core theme, really, of this psalm is that men are redeemed only by God. That it's not wealth, it's not riches, it's not power, it's not status that saves us, but only God and his power over sin, his power over death is what saves our souls. So in verse 1, it says, Hear this, all ye people. Give ear, all ye inhabitants of the world. So this is an invitation for everyone to hearken. This is a message that needs to be heard. This is news that needs to be shared with everyone. 
every kindred, nation, tongue, and people, and the messages of the revelations of heaven, are that God lives and that he has a plan for each of his children in every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, from every period in time, from every clime, from every walk of life, rich and poor, bond and free, and all are invited to come unto God. And the message of salvation, the message of redemption, is to be shared with all the world. And I love that concept. I love the idea that God's redemption must be offered to all. In uh, this section, this psalm, we also reflect on the fact that riches can't save us. Now, that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with riches per se or with wealth or status, but those things are not the things that save our souls. Verse 10 is this, For he seeth that wise men die. Likewise the fool and the brutish person perish and leave their wealth to others. So that is to say that even if we're in a situation where we have lots of prosperity, lots of money, lots of property, lots of status, that those things cannot save us. They can't remit our sins and they can't offer us resurrection. They can't take us out of death, out of the grave. They can't redeem us from hell. So those things have their use, they have their value, but they can never replace they can, God. They can never be a substitute for our God in heaven. Only God can create and only God can redeem. Only God can bring us to that place. And this Psalm 49 is in recognition of that, in clear recognition that God is our salvation. And it's very useful to think about that. Where do we put our trust for salvation? David wants to put his trust in God. And of course, he was tempted. As we know, David had great experiences as a child growing up and as a youth. He was a man of God. We know that as he got power and influence and he became the king and was involved in many wars and was then, of course, tempted by Bathsheba, sin he, he made in that respect. And also in terms of Uriah, sending Uriah to the front of the battle, we know that these were things that were not pleasing to God. And we know that David's going to have a mighty wrestle with that. We know that he has many enemies, even in his own family. We know that he has many difficult circumstances, and he needs the Lord. And so a lot of what we're going to see in these psalms is that reliance on the Lord. And I think it's really useful to ask ourselves those questions. Where do I put my trust for salvation? Where do I place my meaning in life? Who is my refuge and my strength and my high tower? What do I do when I'm in trouble? Do I rely on my riches or my wealth or my intellect? or my status, or my position, or any of these other things in life to save me, or do I rely on God? What do I do if I have enemies? What do I do if I'm betrayed or humiliated, or if rumors are spread about me? What do I do with the rigors of authority? And if I have a leadership position, what do I do when great responsibilities thrust upon me? What do I do when 
I'm struggling with sin and I've broken the commandments. All of these are the sorts of questions we're going to ponder on. So we all die and even the rich die as do the poor. And so the salvation we seek cannot come by means of earthly riches. It can only come by means of following our Father in heaven and his beloved Son. Verse 15 says this, But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. And I love this idea that each of us will pass through the portals of death. Each of us will find ourselves being sick and being ill, and eventually we will die. We can't escape that. And so we need to know the source of our salvation. We need to know that God is good. Let's look at Psalm 50. And this gives us some reference to Zion and the idea of Zion as a beautiful society. Let's look at verse 2. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. Even early on in the scriptures is this idea of Zion, the city of God the place of righteousness, the place of peace, the place of beauty. In fact, the phrase is the perfection of beauty, the beauty of holiness, is another scriptural phrase that I think of when I consider this idea, that God's power and light shines in Zion. It's a society constructed on his laws, his celestial laws, that his saints are striving to live. Let's have a look at verse 5 also. It says this is actually a psalm of Asaph, not David, and it's interesting he was a Levite. And I just find this description of the people of God really beautiful. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. That's a very familiar concept in the house of Israel, that we are a covenant people, that we invite all to make and keep sacred covenants. And those covenants are never easy to live in the sense that they require something from us. They demand something. They demand a sacrifice. That sacrifice may be in the form, originally it was, in the form of a blood sacrifice. You bring your lamb, you offer up your lamb as a sacrifice, a symbol, an emblem of Christ. And the form of the sacrifice changed over the years so that now we don't offer animal sacrifice, but we are still required to give a sacrifice of obedience and faithfulness to God. And I love this idea that the only way we can truly show our devotion to covenant is by sacrificing. In other words, by offering our lives to God, by giving up that which is unholy for that which is a that which is holy and also for offering our whole souls to God to have a broken heart and a contrite spirit and we'll perhaps talk about that a little bit more this idea that's what God wants he wants us to sacrifice the things of the world for the things of a better world and it really is God that saves our souls let's read 14 and 15 Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. 
I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Our God is worthy of emulation. He's worthy of praise. He can be thanked legitimately. We don't need to feign our thankfulness to God. We can praise him. He's worthy of every possible praise we could ever give. The greatest songs we can sing, the greatest words we can write, the greatest expressions of gratitude we can ever offer would be a pale offering in many ways to to represent his great goodness, his glory. He wants us to call upon him in prayer and he wants us to ask him for help in the times of our trouble, in the times of our difficulty. He wants us to draw close to him. And I love that idea from, and that's a regular theme in the Psalms, the idea that we thank and praise God, but also that we need him and we ask him for his assistance. Now let's look at Psalm 51 and we'll have a look at a couple of verses here. This is obviously where David is pleading for forgiveness after he went into Bathsheba. And I always have been touched by this and um, such a sad story in many ways that David who was such a righteous young man and a king fell in this way and the the temptation to do that which is unrighteous can be so appealing and unfortunately David did sin but we also know that he feels very weighed down and very guilty and he wants to repent And some of these verses in this psalm are really beautiful. So let's have a look at verses 1 and 2. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, you can imagine yourself saying that. We've all had situations where we've done things that we regret and we want to be forgiven. We need to be forgiven. And we go to the Lord in sincerity, in sackcloth and ashes, in a sense. And we really are genuine with God. We pour out our souls to him with no illusion, with no hiding, with no justification or rationalization. But we are totally honest with him and we ask him to show tender mercy upon us on the basis of the goodness of his son, Jesus Christ, and on the basis that we are in need of a savior. We need redemption. And the older I get to be, the longer I live, the more I realize that humanity needs a savior. We need a Christ. We need deliverance from the sin and the death that is in this world. And how grateful I am that we can be washed clean, that we can be made new, that our sins can be wiped away. Our sins are taken a body of Christ. In other words, Christ has taken them upon himself. And there's recognition here in this, that this Messiah would come. And of course, he would be of the line, loins of David the line and the loins of David, if I can say it in that way, he would be the rightful inheritor to the throne of David. He would be the king of the Jews. And it takes a king to redeem a king. It takes the king of kings, the Lord of lords, to really save the rest of us. There are many earthly kings and earthly lords, but 
They all need salvation of the King that is Christ. He is our Savior and Redeemer. Let's look at verse 10. David says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The idea of a change of heart, that the heart is contaminated and it needs to be cleansed, it needs to be purified, it needs to be sanctified, and that his spirit had gone astray, his his spirit had made mistakes with Bathsheba and with Uriah, that David had lost his way, and he needed change, not just a superficial change, not just a change in behavior, but a change in heart, a change in spirit, a change in soul, and he needed to be renewed in God. He goes on in verse 17 to say, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. So, that is to say that God isn't just interested in the form of sacrifice, meaning he wants us to be deeply engaged in that process. He wants internally for us to feel that desire to rely on him. He wants us to be drawn to him, that our hearts which are set on the things of the world need to be broken. It's a little bit like a wild horse needs to be broken before they can be useful really in the sense of doing the things that they are created for. And each of us, we are tempted to go our own way, to do our own thing, to follow our own path. And David was no different. Notwithstanding the fact that he was a king, he was subject to temptation and he made some mistakes and he needed to have a broken heart. He needed to have a a contrite spirit to have that godly sorrow, that recognition of his dependence on God. And this really resonates, I think, with all of us. We can all resonate with the fact that we need a change within. We need Christ. And this is not just in a technical sense, but in a deeply personally felt way that each of us, when we think about our lives and the mistakes we have made, that we need a Savior to cleanse our souls, to give us a new heart, a new spirit, and that we will change our ways and become different, become a new person, a better person. And I love the idea that God really is our deliverer from death and hell. He can change us. He can redeem our souls and only he can redeem our souls. This message is for all the world because all are in need of redemption. All people are in need of Christ. All need to repent who are accountable and all need to be born again. Let's have a look at Psalm 61. And often in the scriptures, we have this theme that God is our rock. God is our shelter. God is our high tower. He's our protector. And this Psalm expresses this beautifully. Verses one to four, hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings. Salah. 
And how beautiful the expression there is that David was feeling the need. He was feeling overwhelmed and he was in deep need of prayer. He was in need of communion with God. He needed a relationship. He needed to relate to God. His relationship had been fractured. It had been splintered. It had been broken. And that's manifest in sin. And he needed a healing of that relationship. He needed to draw close to God, and he needed God to be his protection, his defender, his refuge from the storm, his covert, his place of sanctuary, his place of protection and power. And I, again, I love that idea. And again, in, in Psalm 62, we hear more of this theme, verse 7, in God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. And that really helps us to reflect on this idea that even though David was a king, even though he had great influence, great riches, great power, great authority, great influence, he was a man who had needs. He needed salvation. He needed someone to save him. He couldn't save himself. He couldn't be saved in his own name or by his own authority or by his own power. He couldn't remit his own sins. He couldn't resurrect himself from the grave. And neither could the world couldn't save him. Riches couldn't save him. No one could save him except for God. And so he knows this. He knows the source of his salvation and the source of his strength. And it's the same with each one of us. We need to come to know who do we rely on for salvation? What source do we look for a remission of our sins? If we need strength, where do we get it from? Yes, we get strength from food and from rest and from drinking water, but we also get strength, real strength, real power from the provider of those things, from the God who gives us sustenance and life and intelligence and power, from the God who is our refuge and protection in the storm. Verse 12, also unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy, for thou renderest to every man according to his work. David understands that God is a God that blesses us according to our desires and that God doesn't want to impose salvation upon us. That would not be a salvation that would be worthwhile. He doesn't want us just to be robots or to be compelled to do his will. He doesn't want us to be slaves or prisoners. He wants us to be choosing to come to him. And President Nelson has spoken about this a lot, that, uh, often. But it's not just, the purpose of life is not simply to be obedient. It's to choose to be obedient. It's to choose the better way, the higher path, the more noble road of God, his laws, his commandments, his expectations, because they are the way to true happiness. And so I love that the Lord will judge us according to our works, and I wouldn't want it to be any other way. We are free, and that means we are accountable for what we choose to believe and what we choose to do and the voice we choose to follow. And so it is right that God would judge us. And of course, if we rely on the Son of God, if we come unto Christ, God will judge us mercifully because of the goodness of his Son, because of the righteousness of Christ. God will bless us with infinite and eternal blessings. Then in Psalm 63, we learn more about the goodness of God. 
Verse 1, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. And I love this imagery that God is our abundance in the desert of sin. He is our water, our living water and our living bread. When we're hungry, we want food. And we all only fully understand what it is to be hungry when we haven't had food for a long time. I remember in my own life when I, the first time I had major surgery, And I woke up and I was so thirsty. I was parched. Literally, I never felt so dry. I felt like my whole body had no water in it. I was so dry and I just wanted something to drink. And I've related that to my spiritual life. I hope I have a desire for the living water as much as I desire physical water. In fact, even more, I I hope I have a desire to be spiritually nourished to go to God as the source of my living water, my intelligence, my revelation, my knowledge. That comes from him. He's the one that fills our need for belonging. And I love this idea that we are hungry and thirsty people. And we are often in a famine of hearing the word of God, a famine of belonging, a famine of needing consolation, of needing hope, of needing joy of needing a meaning in our lives. And David felt that, even though he was a king. He felt the need for God and for God's sustenance in his life. And then verse 4 of Psalm 63. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. And I love this idea. When Adam was in need, he lifted up his hands to heaven and prayed to God. And that's a common theme in the scriptures. At the altar of prayer, prophets and saints pray to God. They pray in his name. They seek his salvation. One of the things we learn from the book of Psalms is that so much of what's discussed here is really temple imagery. And I'd encourage you to look carefully in the Psalms. Look at Psalm 23 and you will see so much symbolism which is connected to the temple. And the temple, of course, is a place of revelation. It's a place of abundance. It's a sanctuary. It's like a fountain of righteousness and revelation. It's a place where we go to have our souls fed, to be spiritually nourished from the fountainhead, which is God himself. He is the revelation that we want to receive. The temple is a building But in the temple are the ordinances and the covenants that give meaning and purpose to our life. And through the power of Christ's atonement, those ordinances give us a newness of life, a new understanding. And we lift up our hands to God in the holy temple in the sense that we are communing with him. We are drawn to him. We are seeking and searching and pleading for him. We know the source of our salvation in the temple. When we're in the wilderness, when we're surrounded by sin, when we're parched, when we're hungry and thirsty and in despair, we need to then seek the God of our salvation. And a lot of this imagery really is temple imagery. And I'd encourage you to look at the book of Psalms 
in so many ways a temple, a temple process. And of course, David is a king. He's a great type of Christ. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So then in verse 6, when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Here we have the idea of David not just thinking about God during the day, but at the night time. He's pondering, he's reflecting, he's dreaming about God and drawing close to God. And so God is who we seek. He's who we praise with all the energy of our souls, with all the intellect of our minds, with all the fervency of our heart. We can seek God. We can draw close to him. He really is our consolation. He's our hope. He gives us spiritual water and spiritual food. Then Psalm 64, where David prays for safety. He had enemies, as we all do. <clears throat> and he needed to pray for salvation from his enemies, both temporally and spiritually. Verse 1, hear my voice, O God, in my prayer. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. And then verse 2, hide me from the secret counsel of the wicked, from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity. And again, this is another wonderful concept. In the revelations, we learn that there are counsels of the righteous. There's the grand council in heaven, and that counsel then, in many ways, is patterned on the earth, the counsel of the righteous. And in the temple, there's a council of the righteous. If you think about that, uh, you, you will see the great symbolism in that. But also, according to these verses, there is a, such a thing as a council of the wicked. There are conspirators. There are insurrectionists who meet together, who formulate plans, who seek to dethrone those who are in authority. And in the Book of Mormon, this is a common theme. The Gadianton robbers, Kishkumen and others, who were plotters and schemers and who had a plan to try and usurp authority, to destroy freedom, to destroy peace. Then they often counseled against the righteous. And so David is aware of this. He knows this. He knows that his life is under threat. And a king always has enemies, sometimes those close to him. And so he knows that he needs help and protection. And he doesn't just rely on his own strength. Even though he was a strong man in many ways, a mighty man of war, as a young man, he had slain Goliath with a stone. But we know that he didn't just rely on his own strength. When he was wise, he relied on God. He turned to God to protect him from his enemies. And there's something we can think about in our own lives, to seek that protection from the counsels of the wicked who might seek to derail us from the path of salvation. Verse 6, they search out iniquities, they accomplish a diligent search. Both the inward thought of every one of them and the heart is deep. So David is aware that there are conspirators out to get him, and he needs the protection of the Lord. We all have enemies, both seen and unseen, especially if we are part of covenant Israel. And so we need to be discerning, we need to be wise. We need to know that God knows the heart. He knows our hearts and he knows the hearts of our enemies. And he will protect us 
in times of difficulty and challenge. We need to rely on him, not just for temporal blessings, but also for spiritual salvation and vice versa. We rely on him for all things. Verse 10, the righteous shall be glad in the Lord and shall trust in him and all the upright in heart shall glory. So there's a sense here in which David knows that those who are righteous, those who are faithful, those who love and serve God have peace. They have a security. They know they have enemies, but they know that God is their friend. They know that God is their deliverer, their redeemer, their savior. They know in their hearts that they are right with God, that they glory in God and keep his commandments. And I love those remembrances from Psalms to to remind us that God protects us from the conspiracies of the wicked if we are righteous, if we seek to follow him. Let's have a look at Psalm 65. And again, I've referred to this idea that there is much temple imagery in the book of Psalms. And as we look to it and as we see the symbolism, as we see the types, as we see the connections, as you imagine your experience in the temple, think about the encounters that you have in the temple, the protection that comes there, the sustenance, the blessings, the safety the sense of fellowship, the sense of revelation, the sense of prayer, the sense of peace that you feel in God's holy house, God's sanctuary. And the book of Psalms is directing us to be prepared to enter into God's temple, ultimately to enter into God's divine presence, which of course the temple is, is but a symbol of God's presence. So, Uh, Psalm 65, verse 4, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of the holy temple. Think about this. And in the temple, we approach God. We approach him. We draw closer to him, both physically and spiritually. We engage in acts, in rituals that symbolize our ascent into the presence of God. And David wants to ascend into the the divine presence. He wants to draw closer to God, and he has to really struggle and wrestle with that. He has to wrestle with his carnality, his sin that he's committed, his, his nature, which the nature of the world, the natural man, seeks to drag us away from God but God wants us to reach close to him. So the temple is a great symbol of God's presence. And as we move closer to God, we feel the great joy of doing that. Verse 6, which by his strength setteth fast the mountains, being girded with power. Now think about that. We are girded with power in the temples of our Lord. We know what it is to be girded with power to be properly clothed, and to be instructed, to be endowed with light, to be given extra knowledge, extra power, extra capacity. And it's not just that we get revelation in the temple. Our capacity to receive revelation grows. It's not just that we get protection in the temple. Our capacity to discern evil grows, and to resist temptation grows, and our capacity 
to cast Satan out of our lives grows. We gain power, priesthood power, both sisters and brothers, gain priesthood power to be properly clothed, to be properly named, to be properly prepared to enter into the divine presence. They also that dwell in the uttermost parts are afraid at thy tokens. Thou makest the outgoings of the morning and evening to rejoice. Think on that if you will. The tokens of the Lord are real and they are powerful. And those tokens can give us the strength and the knowledge we need. They are centered in Christ. Christ is our salvation and our song. He is our Redeemer to whom we put our praise. And the temple teaches us of him and draws us close to him. Thou visitest the earth and waterest it. Thou greatly enrichest it with the river of God, which is full of water. Thou preparest them corn when thou hast so provided for it. Now think about the implications of that. Who provides us with food? Who provides us with water? Who provides us with shelter, with clothing, with warmth? God is the great provider of our abundance, both necessities and luxuries. He gives us all that we need. He's prepared this earth and all the things on the face of it to be bounteous. This earth is running over with produce that can bless our lives, that can preserve our physical souls, and that can strengthen our faith. So God really has given us a river of truth, a river of knowledge, a river of life. And again, this is temple imagery, the fruit of the tree of life that we partake of, both literally and spiritually, that God has given us temporal salvation in the body. He has given us life, and he has not only just given us life, he has reclaimed us from death. He has prepared a way for our eternal life, our endless life, a life in the body to last for time and all eternity. So God really is generous to us. And then Psalm 66, verse 1, Make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. Now, I love that, this idea that we are to sing praises to God. We are to glorify his name. And that's a powerful idea, that each of us are to come to God and to sing to his honor. We are to praise him, and no matter how much praise we give him, we can never fully elucidate his wondrous works. And you think about the Hosanna shout in the temple. That's a shout of praise. I think about the triumphal entry when Christ entered into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people were waving palms in their hands. And that was a royal procession. That was a the entry of a king, the king of kings, the king of the Jews, the king who had the right to the throne of David. And much of this is a prologue, it's a preparation to what would later come. Make that joyful noise to say Hosanna, meaning save us or save now. We know the source of our salvation, and David knew the source of his salvation. He knew that he was a man in need of repentance, a man in need of a saviour. He couldn't save himself. And so he knows, and he's pointing us to God to save us. Verse 7, in speaking of God, He ruleth by his power forever. 
His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Salah. So, David is an earthly king, but he, re- he realizes that God is the heavenly king who sits upon the heavenly throne and has a heavenly crown and heavenly light, heavenly power, a heavenly or celestial endowment of authority and knowledge and wisdom and dominion. God is the great supreme being, the sovereign king, and he reigns in righteousness. He reigns in benevolence. He reigns in justice and in mercy. In fact, all of his attributes are perfect. Verse 10, For thou, O God, hast proved us, thou hast tried us, as silver is tried. I love this idea that the house of Israel is to be tried and tested. The house of Israel is to be purified, refined in the furnace of affliction, as precious metals have to be tried and tested. So we do. Our hearts need to become more than what they are. Our minds need to be purified. Our hearts are to be sanctified. Through the furnace of affliction, we gain an experience that we couldn't acquire in any other way. And God wants to test us, not because he's cruel, not because he's trying to hurt us, but because he's trying to bring forth the best that's in us. And that can only come through the process of struggle, through the process of difficulty, through rising up, through catching a greater vision of who we are. And I love this, that we are to be proved and tried. We are to become something more than what we think we are capable of. And God is a master at stretching us and testing us in this way. Let's move on to Psalm 69, which is really a messianic psalm. And by that we mean it's a type. David is a type of Christ. David was a deliverer of his people. He saved his people from the Philistines. And David was an example. He's a shadow, a representation of a much greater being who is Christ. David was an earthly king, but Christ is our heavenly king. And so a messianic psalm is to point us to Christ. It's to point us to the source of our salvation. Our salvation is not in man. It's in God. And Christ literally would be the righteous king, the son of God, who would come to redeem us, to save us from all our enemies, from sin, from death, from the devil, from hell, from torment, from despair, from all the troubles and afflictions of mortality. So let's read verse 13. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of thy mercy, hear me, in the truth of thy salvation, deliver me out of the mire. Let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me and out of the deep waters. Again, this symbolism of the water, the mud, the murkiness of life. And whether we're talking literally or figuratively, we know that we are oftentimes caught in deep waters. We're in trouble. We're in quicksand and we're sinking and we need help, a help beyond our own. And so his prayer is to God. He knows that God is a merciful being. He also knows that God is a powerful being. 
that God has the ability to save us and the desire to do so. He has the capacity to save our lives, to bless our souls, to redeem us from our sins, but also to deliver us out of our troubles. Doesn't mean it's always going to happen automatically. In fact, we know it's not, because there would be little need for a prayer of salvation if we were already saved. There would be little need of help in time of trouble if there wasn't genuine trouble. So these psalms are written with reference to real people, with real struggles, real challenges, and real a real searching, a real clinging to God. Verse 20, Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gold for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Now this has obvious reference to the Savior. When he was crucified, we know, and even before he was crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane, we know the entire time from Gethsemane to Calvary, we know that the Savior went through the ultimate difficulty, a torture beyond what anyone else has gone through. We know that he was humiliated and beaten and spat upon. We know that he was betrayed and false witness was born against him. We know he was lied about. We know he was hated and maligned and misunderstood. We know he was persecuted and tortured. We know that he was treated like a criminal. We know that he was hurt physically and spiritually and emotionally and psychologically. We know that he experienced all the bitter pangs of this fallen world, of hunger, of thirst, of sadness, of despair. We know that he was innocent, but that he, in effect, became guilty of all sins. We know that he took upon himself the sins of the world, the pains of the world, the afflictions of the world, the sadness of the world, the hopelessness of the world. We know that he took upon himself not just the sins of saints, but also the sins of sinners. He took upon himself the sins of the world. He became both a victim and a victimizer in the sense that he knew what it meant to be accountable for sins he had never committed. As if he had committed them, he became guilty, even though he was innocent. He took our place. We know that he felt anxiety and angst and despair such as we can't suffer. It's not capable. We don't have the capability to experience that kind of spiritual loneliness that he had and that the suffering and the torment and that he experienced in his atoning sacrifice, which was a voluntary sacrifice given in love. He took upon himself the sins of you and I, all our worst deeds, all our deepest infractions, all the things we're ashamed about and the things we don't want anyone to know, the lies and the deceit and the lust and the pride and the anger and the hatred and the revenge, all those times when we were arrogant and haughty and deceitful. As those things came upon him, he was in bitterest, the most bitter agony of soul. And we know that uh, soldiers gave him vinegar to drink on the cross. What an irony 
he who was uh, the Prince of Peace, he who was merciful and kind and loving, he who was quick to forgive, he who was merciful, he who was loyal and faithful and obedient, he who told the truth, he who was honorable and generous and gentle, he who was courageous, he who was loyal and true and faithful and beloved. He was treated like the worst of criminals. He who was the best of men was treated like the worst possible of men. What a shocking indictment. And this is a sign and a symbol. David is pointing us to Christ. David is feeling something of what Christ would feel. And as David stood as a symbol to his people, God would bless Israel. Christ is the ultimate example. He's the perfect example to save our souls. Psalm 70. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and confounded that seek after my soul. Let them be turned backward and put to confusion that desire my hurt. God knows and David knows that David wants to call upon God to help him from his enemies. And we can do that too. We can pray for deliverance from our enemies. Psalm 71, David says this, My mouth shall shew forth thy righteousness and thy salvation all the day, for I know not the numbers thereof. I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of thy righteousness, even of thine only. So David, not just re- he doesn't just recognize his dependence on the Lord. He recognizes the dependence of everyone else. The whole world, all of humanity, need a savior. And David knows he's not just going to keep that message to himself. He's going to rejoice in God, but he's going to share God's message. He's going to proclaim God's name. He's going to reveal God's power. That's what the Psalms is pointing us to do, to bear testimony of God. This reminds me of Alma. When Alma said, have you experienced a mighty change of heart yourself? If so, have you felt to sing the song of redeeming love? In other words, have you shared that message with others? Have you opened your mouth to declare God's marvelous goodness to the world? And if so, Alma goes on to ask, can you feel so now? And David in many ways is saying something similar. He's had a new heart, a new spirit. He's been striving to repent and he has been indicted by his guilt. He knows his sin. He knows that he needs redemption and he wants to mention God's goodness to all the world. Psalm 72, he speaks about Solomon. He shall judge, this is verse 2, he shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. We know that Solomon was a righteous judge, a mighty judge, And that judgment wasn't just his own intellect. It wasn't just his own power. He was given the capacity and the power to judge divinely. There is such a thing as righteous judgment. There is such a thing as the judgment of God. To learn, to discern, to be judicious according to God's divine standard, which balances both justice and mercy simultaneously. And so Solomon would be a great judge of the people. He would be a righteous judge. And this makes me think again of Christ was the ultimate righteous judge. He never made a mistake in judgment. 
he always did that which was right before the God of heaven. Now, we've a couple of more psalms to focus on before we conclude. And we'll move on to Psalm 85. This is in reference to the latter days where a great work would occur, a great work of salvation, that God would have a message for the world. God is an intervening God. He's not a passive God. He's an actor. He's an agent. He's a participant in the role of salvation. And God has a message for the world today. And he has given us this message. And this was prefigured in the Psalms. Let's read Psalm 85, verse 11. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. We know that this is referenced also in Moses, the book of Moses, chapter 6, where we are told that truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall come down from heaven. Now, what springs out of the earth? The Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is God's good word. It is a sacred record, untouched by the hands of those who would destroy it. It is a pure account of what God did among the people of the ancient Americas. And starting in Jerusalem and then leading over to the Americas, God had a people, God had a work, God had a message. And he preached that great message to us in these latter days through the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is given for the convincing of the Jew and the Gentile that Jesus is the Christ. It's a powerful book. It's a book of power. It's a book of truth. And its purpose is to convince, to prove to us, to show us, to give us the evidence, spiritual evidence, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. The Book of Mormon does that powerfully. It teaches of the plan of God, the redemption of God, in such a marvelous and majestic way. And I love the fact, sometimes people say, where is the Book of Mormon spoken about in the Bible? Here's one of those places where those who have eyes to see and ears to hear will see God's glorious prefiguring, his prophecy of the Book of Mormon in the Book of Psalms. So truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. What's that righteousness? Clearly, that has reference to the revelation of God, that God the Father in Jesus Christ came down out of heaven to Joseph Smith. So did Moroni. So did John the Baptist. So did Peter, James, and John. So did Moses and Elijah and Elias and Michael and Noah and others. They came declaring their dispensations and their powers and their authorities and their abilities, their priesthoods. And that, that revelation from heaven is profound in our day. Joseph Smith, the prophet and seer of the Lord, saw the Father and the Son. He received the Book of Mormon from the angel Moroni. He received the priesthood. He received the power of the priesthood. He received the power to see dreams and have visions. To, he received the keys of the priesthood. He was a seer, a translator, a revelator, a prophet. He received the gifts of the Spirit. He was baptized and received all the ordinances of salvation and exaltation. Joseph restored us 
to the presence of God through that means. And again, if we think about the temple, Joseph Smith's role in restoring the Abrahamic covenant, the blessings of the temple, which are the blessings of eternity, the blessings of eternal salvation and life eternal, they can only come through the living water that is represented in the temple. So here we have in Psalms that prefiguring of that message. In the latter days, that great restoration, which is ongoing. And then Psalm 86 from David. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy of all them that call upon thee. God is a merciful God, a kind God. If we are honest with him, if we level with him, if we go to him sincerely and honestly and humbly with penitence, he will speak to us. He will reveal himself to us. He will forgive us. He will help us. He will strengthen us. That's one of the key messages that God loves to forgive. He's eager to forgive. He's eager to give us a new heart, a new soul, a new life, a new body, which he will give us in the resurrection, but a new mind, a new disposition, a new nature. God will give us a new soul. And then verse 13, For great is thy mercy toward me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. Verse 13, I've often thought about that. We know in Doctrine and Covenants 132, we're told that David was given many wives and concubines by God, and that was approved of because they were given through Nathan the prophet. But it was when David went in his own way and appointed to himself his own opportunities when he went into Bathsheba and had Uriah sent to the front of the war. That was not appropriate. That was not what he should have done. And David knew that. David knew he had sinned against God, and the Lord said he had fallen from his exaltation. And that's really sad. That's really sad. But also that the Lord will appoint him a portion, that the Lord has saved his soul from the lowest hell. Even David, who was a mighty king, could fall, and he did fall, but he sought to repent. And the Lord, to the extent possible, to the full extent of his mercy, God will bless David with a reward far beyond what David deserves. And the same with all of us as we come to God. God blesses us with a rich reward far beyond anything we could ever deserve on our own merits. I'm grateful for the opportunity to read and study the Psalms. I hope that as we've spent this hour together, that you've been touched and inspired by the Spirit, that the Spirit has spoken to your mind and heart about those things you can do to increase your understanding, to increase your devotion to God, to learn of Him and to share His message, and to love Him and praise Him and sing to Him and write about Him and bear testimony of Him. For we believe in a God and that we don't want to keep secret. We want to share his message to all the world, for all need to hear, every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. I conclude, I love David. I love that man. I feel sorrow for his sins. But I also know that he needed Christ. He needed to repent. And he sought to confess his sins to God and to change his life. And that he needed a savior. He needed a king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so do all of us. We all need redemption. We all need a savior. None of us can get through this world successfully without a savior. None of us can go into the eternities to the ultimate reward that is ours without a savior. I bear testimony of the prophet Joseph Smith that he is a prophet, seer, and revelator. I bear testimony of Jesus Christ. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is the Word made flesh. He is the righteous King. He's my Lord and my God. I love him. I want to be like him. I want to teach his message. I want to share his doctrine. I want to honor his priesthood and perform his ordinances. I want to sustain his cause and build his kingdom. I hope that each of us will come unto Christ, that we will come unto David and learn of David, and as we do so, we will learn more about Christ. We will learn more about the temple, that we will walk in that path of righteousness, that we will keep the commandments. Or if we sin, that we will repent and we will come back to God speedily and quickly and eagerly. I hope and pray that each of us will feel the great abundance that comes from our Father in heaven and his beloved Son. I bear testimony that God lives, and he wants to bless us with all the abundance in time and eternity that he possibly can. Thank you for spending the time with us together. I bear testimony that God indeed is our King, our Lord, our loving, kind, merciful, and generous Father in heaven. And our Savior, Jesus Christ, is so generous, so pure, so good, so holy, and he is better than we think he is, more loving and more generous and more kind and more beautiful than we can imagine. I bear testimony of Christ in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.